jingle, won't you share our love? We will build for you a hut. You're gonna be our favorite nut. We'll have a lot of little oh by golly. Then we'll put them in the follies. By jingle, said by gosh, by gee. By Jiminy, please don't bother me. So they all went away singing. Oh, Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will look at the second half of Law Today by Richard Wright. Uh, the last episode, uh, I looked more, more or less at the first part, uh, part one called Commonplace, um, which is basically consists of the first half of the book. Um, and I, I cut a little short, but there probably wasn't too much more to add anyways. Um, you know, you got the main idea, I think, of what this book is trying to do do um book well it's not book two it's, it's part two and three but as far as our podcast is concerned it's like part two the second half the second hundred pages of law today covers part two the squirrel cage and a very brief part three rats alley um and we've kind of already set up most of what we need to get to the end of this book with uh our main character jake johnson being kind of a a man who could have had a better life for himself, but he keeps kind of being his own worst enemy and the society around him doesn't help at all. I think that's a good way to sum up what's going on here. And it's not just uh, racial discrimination that's part of that. It's it's the whole kind of culture, which is, of course, a white supremacist culture that's all around him. But, uh, you know, he's not interacting with whites that much, um, as I said last time. So on one surface, it, it's kind of a criticism of, of the way um, black communities were getting in the way of of achievement. So it's kind of sarcastic and cynical in that way. It's also very much coming out of Richard Wright's Marxist context, where you know where you tend to look at things more systemically, um, and that's certainly what he's trying to do here. So everyone is part of this system of that, that you know that's across the color line. Everyone is into, involved in this system of of oppression in one way or another. Um, it's not. You know, it's in the same way, you know, working class people often make decisions that are against their best interests. It doesn't mean they're not being exploited. It doesn't mean the system's not out to get them. It just means that, you know, working class communities are not always, like, run by angels. And we wouldn't expect that of them when we look at things systemically. So I, I think this is a really good systemic critique of not really Jim Crow necessarily, because this is set in the, in Chicago, but of of America during the Great Depression, race relations during the Great Depression. And of course, one thing we have to remember about the context of this is losing a job for a black person during the Great Depression was typically much worse than for a white person, uh, in part because white families tended to have a little more wealth built up by that point. Uh, even uh, poor white families had a little, in the North at least, had a little bit more wealth. That wasn't, you know, there wasn't as much community support uh, in in black communities, but also more importantly, blacks had the hardest time finding new jobs in a scarce job market, while whites were typically the first hired. And then, and then of course, as you probably know from your history classes, the New Deal policies, which at the time this was written, were already seen being implemented. It's a year into the New Deal when this book was being written, or a year and a half, I suppose. So you don't have the full, you don't have things like the Wagner Act or Social Security and those kinds of things being implemented yet. But you have a lot of other early New Deal policies that are up and running, like the NRA, 
the AAA, things like that wouldn't have affected our characters here much, but the NRA might have. I don't know. And of course, he works for federal government. And of course, there were policies. Uh, well, I guess not yet. It wasn't until 41 that you get the government contractors can't discriminate. I, don't, I actually, I don't know where, what, where, what the racial policy of federal hiring was in the 1930s. Um, I'm guessing there were certain policies. Let's see if it's worth looking up. All right. So I found a article here. The history of African-American employment in the federal government is not characterized by singular static racial segregation. Rather, it's a history with three basic turning points. The arrival of hundreds of free black workers in Washington, D.C. after emancipation, extreme racial discrimination imposed by the Woodrow Wilson administration and largely maintained until the 1960s, and the rise of effective equal employment initiatives during Lyndon Johnson's administration. So by this periodization, that would mean... Um, you know, war contracts aside, that, that was the, the law of 1941, right? the presidential order, that if you're going to, you can't discriminate based on race if you're going to be a war contractor. But it seems the federal government um, wasn't that keen on this, except in like the Reconstruction era, uh, due to Wilson, uh, his policies, and then they weren't corrected until the 60s. Um, here, early black federal employment was fostered by the Republican parties committed to inserting African-Americans into the democracy, blah, blah, blah. Um, but disenfranchisement of virtually all black voters in the solidly democratic South also meant that Wilson's party had nothing to gain from black patronage. Conversely, at the end of World War II, black voters increasingly identified as Democrats and were a growing part of the electorate thanks to massive migration to northern cities. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot more to say here. There's a lot more research on this kind of thing. But... Um, you get the picture that, you know, it's not like the federal government would necessarily like find him another job if he got fired from the post office. So our main character, Jack Johnson, is kind of playing with fire here. He's, he's everything he does is making the situation worse. Now, remember, we, he hit his wife in the opening scenes and he's worried about this early on. So he actually goes to see that barber and he tells the barber, like, can you make a call? I don't know why this barber has such clout. I, I think you know, there might be some kind of shady connections or something, but he's going to speak on, on his behalf and um, get him not fired because uh, the government doesn't want wife beaters on the payroll. Even, you know, even in those days, it looked them bad. And there's 50 other people willing to take the job, right? So um, because of the depression. So losing this guy is not going to matter. So he, uh, he comes into work. That's what part, part two is, the scroll cages, is our character uh, Jack going to work. Sorry, I'm saying Jack. It's Jake. Jake Johnson. Um, if I make that mistake again, I apologize. A lot of J's uh, in his name. Uh, easy mistake. I think a forgivable mistake, I guess. But um, Jake Johnson is going into work, and he's got this kind of shadow over his head. He thinks his wife goes and talks to the boss. Now, why does she do this? Um, I think this just shows her despair. I mean, because she must know that um, this is going to hurt the family even more, that Jack's got debts. He's got debts all over town. There's these expenses, her medical expenses. She's sick. The only income is coming from him and this job because he's obviously not making any money on his, his side gigs, which actually involve gambling and, and being conned. You know, 
from like a feminist perspective, yeah, leave the man, get him fired, fuck the guy. But she's not like planning to leave him. She just complains to the boss. I, I don't quite know her motivation, and we don't really know uh, Lil's motivation here in doing this. Maybe she's just so like at wit's end about it, um, about this relationship that she has to go and seek out help. And the only person people she can ask is the boss. Um, but that is over his. That's his issue. Um, and so part two, the, the squirrel's cage, is very, very fascinating because uh, the first part is really dealing with the fallout of this and how he basically gets um, called into the manager's office to the HR where they talk to him about this complaint and they essentially fire him. And then he you know, basically begs for his job and name drops that doc guy and... and Eventually, he's able to get his job back, but he, he's into jet uh, Doc for more than what he initially agreed to. I think he initially said $70, and uh, Doc says, well, I have to pay me 150 I, I think in a way, Richard Wright is just sort of piling up his debts to, you know, to exaggerated amounts. Because remember, you got to almost multiply all these numbers by, by 10 um, or more, I think, for this period of history, right? So he just dropped like 1500 bucks for someone to, to like save his job. He's got a $500 bill at the doctor's office. He, he lost the you know, money at the, you know, uh, running the numbers. He's throwing money all over town. Plus we learn at some point, I think earlier than this, that he's like the one paying tonight when the boys go out on the town and they, they basically go to, to a whorehouse, bars and, and whorehouse, some kind of brothel. And he's the the payer that day. Um, so he also like borrows money from his employer, and, and it's clear that he's just taking advantage of him too, kind of getting some advance pay, but it's all like debt that he's gonna have to pay back later. So he is just within the first hour of him being back on his job. Anyways, it's also in this section where we get the backstory on the abortion, and we learn that uh, he basically forces young wife, his much younger wife, uh, to get an abortion. Uh, this is how he explains it. So this tells us a little bit about how he sees his wife. Um, well, you see, said Jake, I tricked her into having that first operation. She was just a little dummy when I married her, just 17. She wouldn't have believed the water wasn't wet if I hadn't told her so. I could have pissed her back and made her think it was raining. Well, one morning she comes to me all sad and serious and says she's going to have a baby. At first, I tried to get her to go to a quack and get some medicine so she'd pass the damn thing, but she was scared stiff. She'd heard her gals dying from the kind of operation, and I couldn't get her to move a peg. Then I gets busy and hatches up a smart scheme. I goes to my quack and makes a deal with him. I told him to tell her that she just couldn't have any baby, that her hips were too little and she'd die, or just anything as long as she wouldn't have it. Who in hell wants a lot of stinking babies? He put the job over, and she was shaking like a leaf. She was between the devil and the deep blue sea. While the quack was working on her from one end and I was working on her from the other, in no time we had her so that she didn't know if she was coming or going. I told her that it would kill her to have that baby and she went flying down to the quack begging him to pull that damn thing out of her and do it quick. Cost me 500 Iron Men. Boy, them quacks will gut you if you let them. Quacks and mouthpieces get all the postal clerk's money. Abortions and divorces. But Laud, when she found out what I'd done, you see, she didn't take the operation so well and had to go to a hospital. And they told her the truth about everything. And what did they 
do that for? Was she mad? She cursed me as long as she could see me. And her health ain't been worth a good goddamn sense. But the bad part of it is it, she won't take my word for nothing now. She won't believe a thing I say, end quote. Now, he's kind of presenting himself as the victim here, but obviously he was, he's pretty horrible, uh, trapping his wife into this. And then it just causes more debt for him. Um, you know, I don't know what having the child would have meant for, for him. Maybe he would have been able to turn his life around a little bit. I, I get that sense that maybe he would have been forced to take more responsibility for his life if he was raising a kid. But he didn't want a burden, a digital burden on his life. Right, and he didn't see his his wife as a human being enough to to respect her wishes or to get her honest f- desires for having a if she wanted a child or not. It's all all very sad. Um, now I need to talk about part four of or, or section four of part two, uh, the scroll cage, which is actually a big chunk of the book. It it comes to about thirty pages, and this remember is a two hundred page book. Um, and there's not much to say about this section. It's just Richard Wright having fun. Now, we know he worked at this very job as a postal clerk. And one of the jobs he has to do, and we see uh, we see the workplace culture quite well here. Like the breaks, we see the different jobs they have to do, the sorting, uh, the oversight, the inspections, getting pu- getting punished and questioned for, for sorting poorly. Um, you got this idea of those big bins and then you just sort based on destination, the different states or whatever, the different regions, and then they get redivided. And that's a lot of the work they have to do. And so it's a lot of workers on the floor taking these big piles of letters and sorting them very, very rapidly. I suppose it's all done by computers now, but I think even when I was growing up, I, I think you could see like uh, post postal workers doing this kind of work and it becomes almost like, uh, automatic they're more like machines right in doing this so they just fill in the time with conversation and the conversation is kind of a collective stream of consciousness and i've compared uh richard wright's approach here to james joyce and i'm still convinced that he probably had read ulysses at some point because this has so many kind of connections to ulysses and the experimentation the use of stream of consciousness the the plot itself has a lot in common. I mean, I guess there's no affair. Lil doesn't have an affair, but the tension between the husband and the wife, the wandering about, the the going to a nightclub at the end or going to a bar, a brothel at the end of the book, that happens. The, you know, there's no funeral here, I guess. But very, very, it's too, too similar to be a coincidence, I think. Remember, Ulysses was published in, in America not long before this book was conceived. So anyways, get into this section. Here's how he introduces it. He says, directly behind them, a window framed a square portion of the evening's flying snow. The wind, rising and dying, howled like a lost dog in a vast wilderness. They stacked batches of mail carefully on the table, pressed them together firmly, and carried them slowly to gurneys. When they grew tired like this, and most of their workaday preoccupations been drowned in exhaustion, their basic moods would blend and fuse. They had worked in this manner for so many years that they took one another for granted. Their common feelings were a common knowledge. And when they talked, it was more like thinking aloud than speaking for purpose of communication. Clusters of emotion, dim accretions of instinct and tradition rose to the surface of the consciousness like dead bodies floating swollen, swollen upon the night sea. So literally he tells us, I'm doing collective stream of consciousness. This is a kind of hive mind almost of conversation. Now, how is this structured? Uh, you can just open up this book to, to get a look at it if you, if you have. But it's every line almost 
is a different speaker, and there's no identifier of who the speakers are. It's just we just get the each line is a different speaker, and you get the sense of uh, a cacophony, right? Of you know maybe a dozen people talking back and forth, and people jumping in, and like a mind that's thinking through things and and come, going from one thing to another, like you see in Ulysses, that's happening here. Although it's done with. Um, with dialogue. Um, there's one point where they, they read like parts of newspapers, but mostly it's just these fragments of seconds, sentences being bounced back and forth. And it goes on for, as I said, like 30 pages, a huge, huge part of the book. Um, now, what are the themes here? Well, all sorts of things are talked about. Um, we see a lot about like uh, like the different ethnic groups in Chicago. We see a lot of gossiping about different um, people and people's family members. We see politics being discussed, anti-communism, when we know that uh, Jake is quite anti-communist, maybe not to his best interests. Maybe he would have been better off to have gotten involved with the communists, but he, just like any other propagandized American of the time, thought they were evil and, and, and horrible. Um, we talked last time, too, about how he responded to the news, where everything, he's just antagonistic to everything he sees, everything he reads. He puts it in the worst light. It's just like, it's just kind of a nasty person. He's not, doesn't have anything to offer. He's not very thoughtful. He's just kind of reactionary in every moment. Um, but, you know, I don't know his voice in this. You can't really identify his voice from the others. Um, but that doesn't matter because the point Richard Wright seems to be making is this is just a collective consciousness of sorts. And that, that takes us from page like 150 something, 158 to, to 188. Like I said, 30 pages of this book, um, which isn't a very long book to begin with. And, and that just ends. It just ends. And we presume the day workday ends and we join into part three of the book, the final part of the book, which is the shortest. It's only 25 pages or so. Um, it's called Rat's Alley. Uh, he, his epigraph for this is from The Wasteland, another piece of evidence that Richard writes into modernism and into modernist writers like Joyce and like Eliot. He writes, or he recites Eliot here, but at my back in the cold blast, I hear the rattle of the bone and the chuckle spread from ear to ear. Um, so we got that kind of grim imagery and then the chuckle, the sarcasm, the the humor of this, uh, the kind of someone... The Schadenfreude of it. I don't know. I, I haven't read The Wasteland, to be honest. But um, just from that passage, it seems fitting to what we get because we see Jake's kind of final demise because it ends, he comes home drunk, and he beats his wife again violently. So what's his future at that point? Like, does he, is he once the news gets out that he's back to doing that, he's going to still lose his job. All he does is save it for a day, and it costs him hundreds of dollars and a debt to the, to the boss stuff he's never going to be able to pay off or he'll be basically in, you know, maybe they'll keep him on just so he can keep paying back the, the debts. Um, but, you know, there's, there, there's, there seems not to be much future to him. Maybe it'll just kind of cycle. Every day will be much the same and he'll continue to overspend and dig himself digger, be, digger, deeper and deeper. But how much farther can you go, right? I mean, another author may have showed us how far it could go down. Um, but I, I don't think we have to. I think whether this is his lowest point or whether he can go lower, it really doesn't matter because his, his story 
is kind of over. There's not much more to say about him. One day in this guy's life is all you need to know his arc because it seems he's not going to escape it. But before we get there, our character has to go through kind of one more uh, uh, little plot line, finishing off the day where he and the other workers from the from the postal office, the other postal clerks, basically go to a, a kind of a brothel, right? Now, he's got all this money he just borrowed, so it's going to be gone by the end of the day. It, it's, it's quite a lot. Um, I think it's like... Is it like a hundred bucks? I forget. It was been a while since I read it. I got kind of busy with the end of the semester and and put this book away and didn't get started on the next Richard Wright book. But I forget some of the details on it. But that's it's it's a huge amount of money uh, for the time and for his budget to carry with him to a whorehouse where you assume it's going to be gone, right? And then we, we see him kind of flirting with uh, the, the prostitute a little bit, and we learn a little bit about her. Of course, I don't know if she's a trustworthy, um, trustworthy in documenting her, what she's up to. Um, because it turns out uh, after services are rendered and after the drinking is done, uh, he pays the bill as, as he's expected to. But at some point, he was essentially pickpocketed. His entire wad was taken. And, you know, these are all essentially like you know it's not the kind of situation where you could just like go to the police and get his money back or something right he was um he was essentially conned and scammed by by these prostitutes by the by the establishment owner or whatever he was he was a clear mark and they they took advantage of him and um Now, of course, he puts up a fuss about losing the money, and this just gets him beaten up. Um, and then we get the final section where he uh, returns home drunk. Um, 3.30, I think, is when he, fi he finally gets back. Um, now, notice he has this is kind of like an afternoon job, so he, his day's kind of shifted that way. But his wife uh, seems to get up at a normal hour. But she's woken up by his his drunken ramblings, and he just like goes into a fit and takes all this frustration and anger and aggression. Everything he's been feeling, all his humiliation, comes out in this in this uh, abuse to his his as as I said several times, his, his much younger wife. Um, and then he just kind of passes out and goes to sleep, and we're left with Lil, the final image of this book is his wife Lil um, surrounded by this broken glass and and, and beaten up um, you know she's trying to like fix his wound because he's passed out now and she's trying to like fix the wound he had from his getting beaten up before still kind of showing some a little bit of care for him but her last words are just like Lord, I wish I was dead, and and that's it. Outside, an icy wind swept around the corner, and the build, building whining and moaning like an idiot in a deep black pit. Um, so, in a way, if you think of that wasteland quote, like the grinning, it's like everyone who like made money off him today is is happy about his situation. I mean, his day brought happiness to, to I guess many many people. But obviously, great suffering, great misery that he brings into his household 
and to himself, right? Again, he's got really no one else to blame. Um, he's actually pretty well off. He's He has a job. He has a home. He's got a wife, you know, a decent life, limited, of course, by systemic racism of the time and, and discrimination and all the other problems he's, he, you know, someone in his position would face. But given all that, he's actually got a fighting chance to to carve a good life for himself. And he just blows it because he's like he's completely lacks any control. But again, it's just no one's helping him. There's there's not, he's never no one's sitting him down and saying I, I'm just rereading the stand, right? I don't know if you've read that book, but there's an early scene in the stand where where the main character of that book, Larry Underwood, is having this melt day party and spending all his money because he just made a bunch of money from an album he cut. And a friend sets him aside and says, like, you got to stop this party, right? And chill out and, and figure yourself out before you kind of do this kind of thing again. Make sure your finances are in order before you do this. And he takes that advice. But there's not a single person doing this. Not even Lil is really, I mean, she just yells at him and fights with him a lot, but. She doesn't try to like really direct him in a in a better put him push him on a better direction. No one does. Everyone is just there as to to, to suck a little of his blood, um, and so that is the, is the problem he's facing. It's hard to imagine how he could have gotten out of this. Like like again, everything's there for a good life. It's just society's working against him at every every level. Uh, from the minute he comes out the door, I mean, literally the first thing he, when he comes out the door in the morning, he opens up the mailbox. And there's scammers trying to take his money, right? Um, it's it's a it's a pretty gut wrenching, brutal story, but it's a really really great one. Um, I I think this one really would, deserves a bigger audience than I think it has. Um, I think most people don't read this when they read Rich Wright. They like Black Boy or The Outsider or Native Son. They read those. Probably don't read this one too much, but I, I think it's it's worth reading. But of course, I haven't read the other stuff. If if those are all better than this, well, I'm really looking forward to it. But anyways, um, I guess that's it. Enough of my thoughts about law today. Well, really, really good. Um, next two episodes, we'll read uh, Uncle Tom's Children, which uh, of course is going to be about life in Jim Crow. Uncle Tom's Children would have been. Not quite Richard Wright's age. I guess Richard Wright would be like Uncle Tom's grandchildren. But still, it's the idea. These are the descendants of, of slaves living in America. So I think we'll read essentially two stories here. These are, these are short stories. Uh, but we have room for two of them, I think. Um, Big Boy Leaves Home and Down by the Riverside. There is an autobiographical sketch called The Ethics of Living Jim Crow which is only a few pages that precedes that. Then in the following episode, we'll have the long black song and fire and cloud and bright and morning star. So three stories for the next one. Um, but yeah, that's uh, what's coming up. Looking forward to it. Haven't really started reading them yet. I've been busy with the end of the semester, but pretty soon after this, I think tomorrow I'm going to like read through those stories and be ready to give you my thoughts on it. Um, so anyways, that's it for now. Let me know what you think of Law Today if you've read it. Um, I'd love your opinions. Is it? Did he read Ulysses? I guess that's my big question. I, I guess I 
I could probably just Google this to see if it's true, but it's so clear to me that this is like inspired by Ulysses in, in so many ways that I have a hard time believing he did it. But um, I probably just need to pick up a biography of, I mean, he wrote autobiographies. I mean, I should just read a black boy. All right, that's it for now. Um, I'll see you next time.